And when we're about to study, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, makes us stop and go deeper into the cross. And as Paul shows all the majestic details of the cross, I hope after seeing it in more detail, we may find it much more beautiful. And you know something interesting is that many commentaries and scholars agree that the passage we just read today, the one we're about to study, specifically verses 6 to 11, was actually a hymn. It was a song. It was, a, it was an old hymn that the early church wrote, and it was sung regularly in their worship services. And Paul here, who wrote Philippians, was actually quoting a hymn. That's what we're studying today. Um, and you know what this tells us? It tells us that the gospel was so beautiful to Paul. The gospel was so beautiful to the early church. It wasn't enough for them to just say it. They had to sing it. You don't sing about things that's average to you. You sing about things that captivate you, that is beautiful to you. They've seen it up close, and they've deemed it something too beautiful to leave unto mere propositional statements, and it had to be turned into song. And I hope and I pray that we also, after taking a closer look at the cross and see what actually happened on it, we may find it to be a song worth singing over. And even finally perhaps discover that this is actually the song you've been looking for your whole life. There's three things I want to point out. One, the humble Trinitarian God. Two, the sacrificial Trinitarian God. And three, the invitation of this Trinitarian God. The humble Trinitarian God, the sacrificial Trinitarian God, and the invitation of this Trinitarian God. Let's jump to point number one, the humble Trinitarian God. So the passage starts with verse five. Paul, the author of Philippians, said this, have this mind among yourselves. In other words, he's saying, when you relate to one another, be like this. In other words, this is an example of how we're meant to live. And then, after verse 5, he starts with the first part of the hymn, verses 6 to 8. And it really enters us into some really confusing stuff. Let's look at the first part of this uh, passage, verses 6 to 8. Christ Jesus, have this mind among yourselves, Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, we can't get too much into this, but we got to talk about it, or else we'll understand the cross. As soon as we read verse 6, we immediately see a bit of confusion. Do you see the confusion? Look at verse 6. There seems to be two gods, isn't there? That's not true, but it, there seems to be it. Verse 6 talks about Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So it's saying here, Jesus Christ, one, was in the form of God, and two, is equal to God. Okay, so is Jesus Christ God? But then you see, he was in the form of God, and yet is equal to God. So who is this other God we're talking about here? Are, are there two gods? And it's all really confusing. And right away, Paul throws us, you want to understand the gospel, you want to understand the cross, the first thing Paul does is throw us into the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's really important for us to understand this, to know the details and appreciate the beauty of the cross. This is who the Bible claims God to be. He is one God, but he has three persons that make up this one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul in the early church didn't make this up. You see it all throughout the Bible, even starting in the Old Testament. Just to warn you, it's about to get a bit weird and confusing, okay? But, but stick with me. Genesis 1.26, you see it all throughout the Bible. 
Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. God didn't say, Let me make man in my image, after my likeness. No, he said, Let us make man in our image. Okay, so does that mean there are many gods? But it says, God said, let us make man in our image. Not the gods said, let us. So, and then you, you, it's confusing. And then you keep reading the Old Testament and you go to a passage like First Chronicles sixteen thirty-five. Save us, they prayed, O God of our salvation. Not O gods, plural of our salvation, one. That we may give thanks to your holy names. Not your holy names, plural, so then why does Genesis 1 seem to be pointing at one God, but then this one God says us, and then now we see that there's one God that has one name. And you get hints of the Trinity here, but it's not really fully out revealed until you get to the New Testament. Stick with me. You get, you get to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 19, and talks again about God's name. You see Jesus saying what here? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, church, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So stick with me. So we finally see that the one God of salvation of the Old Testament that has one name in First Chronicles 16, but this one God with one name in First Chronicles 16 addresses himself as us in Genesis chapter 1 because this one God, as seen in, verse, in Matthew 28, are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thus quoting the Westminster Larger Catechism, there be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. First, don't panic, okay? That was a lot of stuff I just kind of threw at you, and I did that purposely. Don't try and jangle it all together. One, we don't have time for that. But two, I want you guys to also feel that it's, it's, it's good to try and understand. It's good to try and rack your brain around it. But trying to understand the infinite God is, for man to do that is, is, is harder than for an ant to understand everything about macroeconomy, so, so try and do it. Rack your brain around it. It's good. You must. It's a command. But there is wisdom in humbling ourselves as we are reminded of our creaturely limits before an infinitely transcendent God. That's one. Don't panic. But two, this doctrine of the Trinity that is seen throughout the Bible is the only way our passage makes sense today. It's the only way our passage makes sense. Only when we read our passage... In Jesus being God the Son, who is equal to God the Father, will this passage make sense? Look again at verse 6 to 7. Re, re, de, determine it through the lenses of the Trinitarian God. Christ Jesus, or God the Son, in the New Testament he's addressed as, God the Son, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God the Father a thing to be grasped, you see, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says. When you treat each other, follow the example of Christ, God the Son. Who though he was truly God, truly equal to God the Father, he let that right go. And he humbled himself. And this is immediately convicting. Because we look at the way we treat our family. We look at the way we treat our spouses. We look at the way we treat our friends and our Uber drivers. 
And it doesn't really represent this God, does it? Who was willing to lay his rights down and humble himself so low that he was willing to be hung on a cross, on a humiliating cross for us. When our spouse makes a mistake and when we have all the right to wait for them to initiate to us because they've wronged us, you have that right. Do you lay it down? Do you lay it down and initiate reconciliation first? When our friends wrong us, to where you have the right to hold a grudge against them. You really, really do. I'm not saying you don't. Do you lay it down? Or do you hold on to those rights so tightly? Paul says, lay it down. Treat each other so selflessly you're willing to lay down your rights for them. Now, I'm not talking about letting other people abuse you and, and step all over you. This is important. If we want to understand the cross, we've got to understand this point. There is a way to lay down your rights without falling into people abusing you, which is actually a very important passage. Some of us look at the cross and, and the amount of rights that God the Son gave up for us, and we think the Christian walk is all about people letting people abuse us. Jesus is letting other people abuse him. No, he's not. He gave up his rights, yet was not abused. What's the difference? See, what determines abuse or not isn't the amount of rights you let go. It's why you let them go. This is important if you understand the cross. Look, you can let go just a little bit of your rights, but if the reason you let it go isn't because you want to, but because someone else forced you or manipulated you to doing it apart from your will, that's abuse. You feel abused, even if the rights they took was just a little bit. Currently, there's a movement called the Me Too movement where women all over the world are standing up to sexual abuse. And this is great. Some of these things need to be exposed. And some of these stories of women being abused range from uh, verbal to physical. Now, you would never and you should never go up to these women who have spoken up and say this well, hold on, how much did he abuse you? You would never say that, and you shouldn't. Why not? Because it doesn't matter how much. It doesn't matter if it's a verbal innuendo or if it's physical exploitation. The point isn't the amount. The point is they've been coerced out of their own will to be exposed to something they did not approve. It doesn't matter the amount. It's abuse all the same. See, abuse doesn't have to do with how much of your rights you've lost. It has to do with how you lost them. Did you choose to lay them down? Or was it taken from you without your consent? Now contrast this Me Too movement, friends, with my wife and I, who lose our rights every day. Do I have the right to sleep at night? Yes, I do. But at least two times a week, that sweet right of mine is taken away by a two-year-old child that I love very much. But she robs my right to sleep. Does my wife have the right to go to the bathroom alone at peace? Yes, she does. But almost every day, that right was taken away from her by who? A two-year-old child, my, our daughter, by the way, if you're wondering who this two, random two-year-old child is, <laughs> who lives in our house, okay, whom she loves very much. Oh my, if you're a parent, you know how much of your rights are taken away by your child. It's unimaginable. But neither of us 
would go to Elena's room at 2 a.m. in the morning while she's crying and say, stop abusing me. We'd never say that. Why? Because abuse isn't about the amount of rights taken away. It's about whether or not your rights were manipulated out of your hands or if you yourself chose to lay them down. My wife and I have chosen to lay down all our rights for our children. So when it happens, neither of us consider it abuse. But those women who've been exploited have not chosen to give those terrible men the things they took by force or coercion. So no matter how little they took or how much they took, it's considered abuse all the same. Abuse is not a matter of how much rights you lay down. It's about whether or not you chose to lay them down. What happened on the cross? Look at verse 7 to 8. Christ emptied himself. He chose to do it by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He took human form. He was born as a weak human child. He chose to do that. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He surrendered to those who would crucify him. He climbed upon that cross on his own will. What did Christ say in John chapter 10, verse 17 to 18? I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my accord. The king of kings lay down, freely chose to lay down an amount of rights that none of us can even begin to comprehend. Verse 6 starts with Jesus being equal to God. And verse 8 ends with died on the cross. You see the gap? But he chose to. This is one beautiful detail of the cross that is often overlooked God, not just a moral religious man, not just a a good moral example. God, not coerced or forced, but by his own free will, chose to lay down his life for you. This truth should make us sing. And the reason why it doesn't, maybe because it feels so huge, it's hard to compute it. If you tell a two-year-old child that they just inherited $10 million dollars, it wouldn't really compute. It wouldn't really impact them emotionally. They wouldn't really burst into song, not because the gift was too little, but because it's somehow beyond them to understand what $10 million is. The cross is kind of like that, isn't it? We hear about it. Maybe we've seen more of the details now, but it just takes a while to compute. (laughs) Just really for a second, try to comprehend that. Just really try and comprehend that. If, If you believe this is the word of God, If you come here today claiming the Bible is true, try and comprehend that. Try and remember the last time you chose to lay your rights down for somebody else. Whether it's your child, whether it's your loved ones, whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or or a family member. Try and remember how you felt when you chose to lay down your rights for a loved one. Not coerced by anybody else, not because you're forced to it or manipulated or guilted into doing it. You, by your own free will, chose to lay it down for them. What did you feel? Remember how much you must have loved them? To do that, you must have been emotionally moved. Can you compute how God must have felt about you to choose to lay down such a right for you? Try and imagine it. Now, that's one detail of the cross that's often missed. The second detail of the cross that this passage talks about that we must see in order for us to burst into song is that the cross wasn't just about how humble this God was willing to go for you, 
but also how much our sacrificial God sacrificed for you. Point number two, the sacrificial Trinitarian God. The focus of our text transitions now from God the Son to God the Father. Whereas verses 6 to 8, it's about the work of God the Son in humbling himself on the cross, the focus of verses 9 to 11 is God the Father and his involvement on the cross and what he was willing to give for you on the cross. Look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Read it again, one more time, slower. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The him that is being exalted here is pretty obvious. It's Christ who in verses 6 to 8 humbled himself. He was exalted. But who is the God that exalted Jesus Christ? Who is, who is God? Well, it's God the Father. Let me just read another passage that clarifies this. Acts 2, 32, 33. Just, just stick with me in this point for a little bit. This Jesus, okay, this Jesus, God raised up, God exalted, God glorified after the cross, after he died on the cross three days later. And of that, we're all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, who is this God? And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out, uh, he had poured this out that yourselves are, are seeing and hearing. So what the saying is, Jesus Christ, God the Son, humbled himself, died on the cross. God the Father exalted him and gave him the power uh, uh, and authority to um, send out the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit to us. It was God the Father that raised up and exalted Jesus after the cross. And this is often a detail of the cross that is missed by us. The Father's involvement. We focus a lot on God the Son. And that's not wrong. That's great. Keep doing that. But when you do so, don't miss how active God the Father was on the cross. Look at verse 9. He was the one who exalted Jesus, God the Son. He was the one who received glory after Jesus' exaltation. In other words, stick with me. It's going gonna, it's gonna to connect. In other words, everything that happened after the cross, the resurrection and the glorification of God the Son, God the Father was really involved in. So now the question is, here's where it connects. The question is, if God the Father was intimately involved in everything that occurred after the crucifixion, we must ask ourselves, how intimately was he involved during the crucifixion? How involved was God the Father when God the Son was crushed? Very involved. This will make you sing, I hope. Let's now refer to another verse. And if you've heard the gospel in passing, if you've seen it um, or heard about it one way or another, John 3.16 is probably a verse a lot of people have heard. One of the most popular verses, and many people pass by it, but let's take a second to actually take a deeper look into it. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Who is it here you see loving the world so much? Who is it in John 3.16 you see loving you so much to where he gave his only son? Who is the he here in John 3.16? Not God the Son. It's God the Father. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. The focus is God the Father. On the cross, God the Father loved you so much, 
He gave up his only son. Now this is no trivial thing. For the infinite love that God the Father has on God the Son is incomprehensible by us. He loved him before the foundations of the world and the deepest, most intense affections that we have felt for another human being doesn't even come close to a fraction of how much the Father must have loved the Son. And a pastor once explained the pain of God, of what God the Father experienced on the cross um, uh, um, in a sense is, is this way. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it, it, it can be helpful. He said the degree of love that we have for someone determines the degree of pain we experience when we lose that person. Think about your past relationships. When you, when you lose a coworker because you move jobs, that's sad. But it's not as sad as losing a close friend who you've been friends with for longer, right? Because the degree of relationship you have with your old good friend is greater than the degree of relationship you have with your coworker. But even, even losing your friend is not as sad as breaking up with somebody that you really, really, really love. Because the degree of relationship you have with that ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or, or whoever is much greater than the degree of love you have for your old friend. Now, increase the degrees of relationships even more. If you lose an immediate family member, if you lose, lose your spouse, or God forbid, if you lose a child, the pain would be so great, it'd be hard to function again. Because the degree of love you have with them is greater than a coworker or than you have with a good friend or a past girlfriend or a boyfriend. See, the degree of pain experience of being separated from someone is determined by the degree of intimacy you have with that person. What happened on the cross? Try and think about it. God the Father went through the deepest agonies that ever existed because he crushed his one and only son whom he has loved eternally. It's pains of eternal proportions because the relational degree is of eternal proportions. And just as the deepest, most loving, affectionate relationships we've experienced with a loved one before is not close to the love that the father had with the son, neither is the pain of being separated from those people close to the break of what happened on the cross. On the cross, Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember how much you wanted to hold on to that person that you loved in the past? And therefore, you didn't want to be separated from that person? You wanted to hold on to him or her so much because you love them? The father loved the son infinitely more, but he let him go for you. It's bizarre. Do you see the Trinitarian love that the cross engulfs you in? Now, friends, we see these details, and it should want to make us sing. It should. And how can we tell whether or not these truths that we just studied have turned into music in our hearts? One, we're emotionally moved by it because it's beautiful to you. You're emotionally, you don't sing about things that's average to you. Why do you listen to music? Why do you buy music on iTunes? Why do you go to concerts? Why do you spend time checking out your favorite artists on YouTube and just sit there and listen to music? It doesn't pay your bills. It doesn't make your stomach full. It doesn't advance your career. It doesn't help you close a project. There's absolutely no practical, pragmatic result that listening to music does. You actually waste time and money. 
So why do you do it? Because it's beautiful to you. Something's beautiful to you when it's an end goal in itself, not a stepping stone for something else. It emotionally moves you. <laughs> to Paul, to the early church, the details we just saw, they sung it. It's not just random truths out there. They emotionally was moved. But two, it's not just about being emotionally moved. It's easy to manipulate emotions. Really easy. But you can tell whether or not these gospel truths have really become true and real and beautiful to you. And whether or not it's turned into song in your hearts by the way you treat one another. What does Paul say in verse 5? Have this mind among yourselves. Treat each other in this way. Do you forgive? Do you forgive? Do you choose to lay down your rights for the sake of others? Don't look too far. Just talk, think about your immediate relationships, your marriages. Do you lay down the rights you rightly have? Your friends in this room, do you lay down your rights for them? Do you desire reconciliation? But, but they're in the wrong, and I have all the right to hold it against them. I know you do. I'm not saying you don't. I'm saying you do and lay it down. That's the cross. You see, this is how you know whether or not the cross has become real and beautiful in your lives. Your mind observes and understands its details. It then affects your heart so much in such a way you can't help but sing of it. So much so that even your very actions are shaped by it. Just imagine how your marriages would be. Just imagine how fellowship in this church would be if this is the song you were singing. But perhaps, even now, after hearing what this triune God did for us on the cross, what the Son laid down for us, what the Father gave up for us, even now, for some of us perhaps, we're not yet singing. It has not yet moved us into song. It still feels distant, you still feel kind of disconnected to it. Why? Last point. The invitation of this Trinitarian God. To some of us, all we've studied in the past, what, 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, all this may just sound like really intense and profound stuff, but for some reason, it just feels disconnected. You don't, it doesn't make you want to sing. Why? Because you don't see yet how all of this has anything to do with you. It feels like a like distant theological talk that, pastors and theologians are meant to talk about. It's something that happened out there, but I don't know how it affects me. It's not really directed to me. And you read verses like nine, verse 9 to 11, and you say, see, the goal of all this is for God to get glory. It has nothing to do with me. What does it have to do with me? Verse 9 says all this happens so that Jesus may be exalted. Verse 10 says, so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Verse 11 says, so that God the Father may get the glory. This whole thing is great and all, but it's just all about God's glory. Something out there has nothing to do with me. Well, first, let me agree with you. Yes, all this happened for God's glory. That is absolutely correct. God is doing it for his own glory. Jesus died on the cross for the Father's glory. The Father, in this act of letting go of the Son, exalted his Son, made him ruler of all to be worshipped. It's absolutely true that the Trinitarian God did this to bring glory to himself. Yes, but it's not true that it doesn't have anything to do with you. It has so much to do with you. Think about it. Let me ask you this. 
if this perfect, all-glorious Trinitarian God really did exist, would he have lacked any glory before the cross? Would he have lacked anything before the cross? Was he like insecure before the cross and he needed the cross to get more glory and feel more secure about himself? No. He's all-sufficient. He doesn't need the cross to fill up any insecurities or lack he has about, about the fulfilled glory of his. Okay, you think, okay, maybe then the son had to like prove his love to the father somehow. He had to earn his father's love by doing something really hard for him. No, that's not true. Listen to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Father, he said, I desire that they also, talking about his followers, his disciples, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. God the Son didn't need to prove anything to the Father. He wasn't loved any less by the Father. There's a glory and an intra-Trinitarian love that existed before the foundation of the world, before the cross happened. In other words, the Son did not need to convince the Father of his love for the Father through the cross. The Father didn't need the Son to die on the cross because somehow he lacked in glory and needed the cross to kind of complete him. He was perfectly happy, the Holy Trinity, before the foundations of the earth. So why did he do it? Why did God the Son humble himself, put on flesh, and die on a cross? Why did God the Father crush his eternal beloved Son and endure such pain? For you. For you. Romans 5, 6 to 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did God the Son humble himself unto a cross? Why did God the Father crush his Son on the cross? So that he can take upon himself the punishment that we deserve from our sins. And through that we may be saved. And that we may give praise to him for his utmost glory that's existed for eternity but now revealed truly to all of who we are on the cross. He did it because he's glorious. He did it for his glory. He did it because he loves you. Do you see what Paul sees? Do you get what the early church understood? They realized the cross wasn't just dry theological claims out there. It was an invitation it's an invitation. You're being invited by a Trinitarian God who is extending fellowship with you through the cross. He who was innocent died on the cross, meant for criminals, so that we who are guilty can have eternal life as innocent children of God. Are we singing yet? Now let me just assume, let me just assume, even after hearing this, some of us are still not yet singing. It still feels disconnected because you think, okay, I see all the details now and I see how it's not just dry theological claims that it's an invitation to me. But it's just not for me. If God really knew my life, if God really knew how ungodly I am, how unrighteous I am, how frail my commitments are, he wouldn't be offering me such a great salvation, such a fellowship. Yes, he is. Look one more time at Romans 5, 6 to 8. Let me just read it again, just so it's clear. Who is God offering this gospel to? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? Not for the godly. 
for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we're no sinners no longer, while we've gotten over the hump of our sin, while we've made ourselves righteous and good enough to receive him, no. While we're still sinners right now, God died for us. Don't you get it? That's what makes this truth so beautiful. It's precisely because we don't deserve it. You'll never sing of it if you think you deserve it. It's only at the moment you realize that you don't will this truth turn into song. It's only at the moment you realize it was your sin that hung him there will these truths turn into poetry. Here's an invitation to you, a truth offered to you so beautiful that you won't really understand it unless you're tempted to burst into song when you think about it and this song, this dance moves you into action. That's what happened on the cross. And I pray that you receive this offer, this invitation, that you're reminded of the profound, glorious love of the triune God. You look at the depths of the humiliation he went through on the cross. You look at the sacrifice of God the Father did for you, and then you sing. I pray that God the Spirit will make the love of God the Father and God the Son effectual and real in your hearts and make you finally find the song you've been looking for your whole life. This is it. This is what you're created for. This is the fellowship you're meant to have. This is the drive, the purpose that's meant to ever take all of you. Until you find it, until you sing it, we will not have joy. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible truth. The triune eternal God who did not lack anything want to invite us and make us partake of this love. That the love that the Father had for the Son will be had for us and that the love that the Son had for the Father will translate in his sacrifice and love for us and that the Holy Spirit will reveal all these truths in our hearts that we may fall in deeper love with the Father and the Son and we're mixed up in this intra-trinitarian love that is offered and experienced by the one true God who has existed through our eternity. And Father, let us creatures find true purpose. Let us find and let this revelation be truly what we're called and know to do. This is what we've been longing and looking for. A love so great, it loses us in it and makes us give our whole lives in it and makes us pattern our lives by it, that we may too now give up our rights because you, God, King of Kings, have chose to willingly, freely lay down your rights that we may be included into your glorious love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.